This is the Inquiring Awareness Session, Talk 2, Day 1. The word Sashin means to gather the heart-mind or to touch the heart-mind. Gathering the heart-mind is like the stabilizing, the settling aspect, the concentration aspect. Again and again we find ourselves in the realm of imagination, of past and future, of story, of delusion of figuring and theorizing and planning and philosophizing. And we gather the mind back to here, to this moment. A poem from Basho. Many things of the past are brought to my mind are brought to my mind as I stand in the garden staring at a cherry tree. So much can happen in a half an hour of meditation, in a moment in the garden. So many thoughts, so many images, so we can go so many places. And this is totally normal. And The practice of gathering the heart and mind, the mind-heart, is essential. And it's simple. It's just the release of the tendrils of thought. It's bringing awareness back to the simple present moment experience. Feeling of the bottom on the cushion or chair. The breath sound, a heartbeat. And of course, thoughts and beliefs and stories are also a part of the present moment. They are not outside of our present moment experience. They all happen here, now. And yet, we lose ourselves in them. We get entangled and attached to them, and we suffer when this happens. So the practice is to gather ourselves, to bring ourselves back, to return from the imaginary story realm, to return, to return, and to return. To teach ourselves to stay in this real experience, in this lived experience in this reality in which thoughts are just a small part, like a cloud. And then we can consider what it means to touch the mind or to touch the heart-mind, another meaning of the word sashin. This touching is very intimate. To touch something is to feel it directly, to know it directly. Bodhidharma says in the blood sermon, it's like drinking a cup of water and only you know the exact temperature of the water. 
It's so intimate, this touching. What is it like to touch the sound? What is it like to touch the breath? What is it like to touch a thought? And this is inquiry, the insight side of practice. Insight being the fruition of inquiry. Inquiry is the looking and insight is the seeing or the touching. The direct experiencing, knowing. So touching this life directly, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, knowing, without thoughts of separation. And even though we talk about these two aspects as being separate, stabilizing, gathering the mind, and inquiring, touching into what is really true, really seeing, to gather and to touch are actually inseparable. We can't really gather if we haven't touched. And we have all touched it. We are it. And we can't really touch if we haven't gathered ourselves. As Chosen Roshi said, when the mind is wandering around like a two-year-old with a flashlight, we can't see clearly. The ability to get still and shine the light of awareness directly on our experience in a sustained way is essential to clear seeing. Seeing into the true nature of ourselves, seeing into the cause of suffering, seeing into the release of suffering. Not just conceptually knowing the cause of suffering or the release of suffering, but but directly knowing the tangible experience of suffering and the uh, tangible release of suffering with the whole being. This seeing, this touching, this knowing, this intuitive knowing of the fundamental freedom that we are is what is truly liberating. And this is not something that can be accomplished when the mind is entangled or attached in thought. One of the hang-ups of inquiry practice is that we somehow get the impression that to inquire is to think about, to think logically about, to figure out. Um, And this is often how the word is used in the English language. Um, And this is often what happens when we try to inquire, we just start thinking about the inquiry. So um, please know that you're not alone if you find yourself thinking about practice more than actually practicing. Um, For most of us, this is uh, just something that we have to go through. This sort of struggle with our thoughts. 
Even if we really have felt what true inquiry is, we keep finding ourselves tangled in thought, in like and dislike, in stories of past and future, in philosophies about practice. Our minds are just so habituated to constant thought that constant thought and also some part of us actually believes that we're going to find freedom in the figuring out of spiritual practice in some um, thought understanding, some conceptual understanding. And that, that's not true. That, that's not uh, where freedom or satisfaction lies. And there's certainly a place for logical conceptual inquiry and critical thinking in our lives um, and in practice. You know, that's what's happening in a way now, part of what's happening now. And the truth is that most of us seem to have to believe in practice. That is, we have to have some conceptual understanding of what practice is and what we're doing in order to actually give ourselves to presence wholeheartedly. So the teachings, the conceptual teachings are helpful often and important, but they're also a trap. (laughs) We have to ultimately let them go. And then when we touch the place of true inquiry, when the kind of inquiry that leads to real insight that goes beyond belief, when we start entering into actual, you know, it's like there's no words for it. It's like to actually meet our life, to actually become our life, uh, instead of relating at a distance uh, through the filter of ideas or through the veil of ideas. When we start looking into these questions of what is it that's alive? Who is it that sees? What is this knowing? This knowing that requires no effort, that just has been with us our whole lives, this this awareness, this beingness this empty looking. Where is it that thought comes from? What is this sense of self? This I, who am I? What is it that is referred to when I say I? Often it's an image of me in time, but what is the actual experiencer? Who is the one inquiring? So if this kind of questioning is engaging to you, if it's interesting to you, and it's not always, it hasn't always been in my experience, And sometimes it has been very, very interesting and engaging. 
So if you find that you're curious about that, I very much encourage you to explore inquiry in this way in looking into experience, the experiencer itself, into awareness itself. You could say that uh, this is maybe direct inquiry, the most direct kind of inquiry, going directly to the source of experience. Here's a poem by Japanese poet Saigo. Yoshino Mountains, the one who will get to know you, the one who will get to know you inside, the one who will get to know you inside out is I. For I've gotten used to going into your depths for blossoms. For I've gotten used to going into your depths for blossoms. So this type of inquiry can lead to great blossoms, (laughs) great freedom great beauty, and it can also be quite frustrating. (laughs) It's not always for everyone, and there are many entrance gates into the depths. Direct inquiry into the self is not the only one. Dharma gates are endless, and literally they are endless. Any single aspect of the present moment experience can be a Dharma gate that leads completely directly to freedom to true nature, because it's all made of true nature. Even including thought, including what we call illusion, can be a direct dharma gate. It's often said that we live in an illusion, an illusion of I, an illusion of you, an illusion of past and future, an illusion of good and bad, of should and shouldn't. We take this conceptual view of what is happening and say, this is my life. I am a person who was born in San Francisco in 1982, and I'm 39 years old. I've lived in this place for such and such, and I'm going to live in that place. This is my career. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. This is what I do well. This is what I don't do well. This is who I am. And then we do the same thing for the world. We say that's a floor and that's a mat and those are people and you are like this and you shouldn't be like that and you should be like this. And then we call that our life, that imagined world of me and the world. And that's just a small aspect of our life. And then there's the possibility of immediacy, of now, of this life, and of not knowing who I am and who you are. So 
There was this one time I was sitting in the woods and I thought out of the corner of my eye that I saw a person walk up about 50 feet away or 20 feet away and sit down. And in my mind, I was there. They were there sitting by me and they were watching me. Do you ever have that sense that the people around you are watching you or judging you? And about 20 minutes later, the sitting period ended, and I got up, and I looked over, and it was a log. (laughs) And I've come to see that uh, even though I don't always see it clearly, this is actually what's happening most of the time in my experience, in the experience of human life. Another Basho poem. Not knowing the name of the tree, I stood in the flood of its sweet smell. Not knowing the name of the tree, I stood in the flood of its sweet smell. It is a bit too cold to be naked in this stormy wind of February. So as we watch our mind, we begin to see that it's almost always living in this story world, keeping track of my life, telling my story about me and the world and what's going on and what time it is and what's gonna happen next and what happened before and created an identity that's almost always uh, continually being refreshed by thought, Uh, kind of solidifying an identity through thought, through concept. And in his poem, Basho touches upon the vulnerability of nakedness, of not knowing who we are, of intimacy. And then we understand why we protect ourselves with this story world, with this false sense of knowing what's going on. It's scary not to know. It's vulnerable not to know. Or at least we think it's scary. It feels dangerous maybe before we enter it and after we come out of it (laughs) back into our story. I was listening to a Dharma talk the other day by Byron Katie, and she was telling of an experience she had sitting in the desert. She would go into the desert and just sit all day. And she um, had this experience where one moment her son had went with her to the desert, was way over on this hill on the left side. And she and he said, he called for her, Mom, Mom, look at me, look at me, I'm up here. And then she's, oh, hi, hi. And then she returned to sitting. And then the next moment, as 
she experienced it. She opened her eyes to him way over on the hill on the other side. Mom, 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 here I am. And um, this experience of ceasing to keep track of time, of self, is what she was sharing, this potential of sinking so deeply into present experience that we cease to know, to keep track of what's happening. And then coming out of it, her being like, or maybe it was her, other people, that's dangerous, you, that's, you can't do that. Like, here you are in the desert, no food, no water. Even when we aren't in the desert and we have food and water and shelter, it feels dangerous. From Zen teacher Huang Po Obaku, Zen master Rinzai's teacher. Those who hasten towards it dare not enter. Those who hasten towards it dare not enter, fearing to hurtle down through the void with nothing to stay their fall. So they look to the brink and retreat. This refers to all those who seek the goal through cognition. Thus, those who seek the goal through cognition are like the fur, the many. And those who obtain intuitive knowledge are like the horns, the few. Another from Obaku. Many people are afraid to empty their minds least they plunge into the void. They do not know that their own mind is the void. The ignorant avoid phenomena, but not thought. The wise avoid thought, but not phenomena. Many people are afraid to empty their minds, lest they plunge into the void. They do not know that their own mind is the void. The ignorant avoid phenomena, but not thought. The wise avoid thought, but not phenomena. So, as Byron Katie says, to stay our fall, we begin putting post-it notes, concepts on everyone and everything we encounter, labeling them. This is Shanae, this is my talk, this is Sashin, this is my robe, this is the mat. So we can know what's going on. So we can create a false sense of security. And another entrance gate into presence into the truth truth of this life beyond concepts is those very concepts themselves, is the post-it notes, our thoughts about reality, and especially the stressful thoughts or the suffering thoughts can be very powerful objects of inquiry. 
another poem from Saigo. Rare achievement, rare achievement, this birth in human form. And so easily lost by not learning how not to sink below again. Do you see how we lose our life every time we invest ourselves, attach ourselves, entangle ourselves in the story? We don't even even notice the birds. We don't even notice the way the earth is supporting us. The amazing miracle that we can see and feel. We lose the breath. So easily lost. So this inquiry into thought is another way to learn how not to sink below again, how not to get lost in delusion. So I'm going to share this process that I've come to love and use a lot. Uh, And it's a process that was developed by the teacher Byron Katie. uh, To use um, stressful thoughts as entrance gates to truth. And it works really well, but only if you're open to it. And not everyone is open to it, and that's totally fine. It's not the only entrance gate. Just like looking directly into the self is not the only entrance gate. But I'm sharing a few different ways of inquiring so that uh, each person can find what works for them, and maybe more than one will work for you. So this process has five steps, and I've put her process into my own words. So she says it slightly different, but I think it's the same um, result, same process. So the first step is to identify any moment of suffering. So any thought or and the thought and belief that's the cause of that suffering. So any anxiety, irritation, fear, hurt, jealousy, attachment, negativity, a sense of lack or boredom, any friction point, so any of the many flavors of dukkha, all of these experiences we can broadly label as suffering or friction, dukkha, and uh, all of those, the things that we label as suffering are caused by having a belief about reality that doesn't line up with reality. So we have an idea of how we should be or how the world should be or how the world is or how we are or how others are that doesn't quite line up. The Buddha said it was dukkha is like um, the hub of a wooden wheel that's not carved well, that's um, not completely circular. And so it causes friction. So our thoughts, our ideas about the world don't quite line up with reality. And so it causes this friction, this anxiety or fear or lack or many of the other flavors of dukkha. And in other words, you can call dukkha illusion. The word illusion is defined like like this. I just looked it up. It's something that looks or seems different from what it is. 
So this happens when we're looking at the thought instead of looking directly at the experience. We have this layer of illusion or a veil of thought. Something that looks or seems different from what it is. Something that is false or not real, but that seems to be true or real. An incorrect idea, an idea that is based on something not true. That's what illusion means. So, simply stated, thoughts, concepts, however useful, are illusions. They're not quite the real thing. Maybe you could say they're made of the real thing, just like everything is. So we identify a belief that is the basis of a moment of suffering. So anytime we feel stress or anxiety or fear, we can say, what is the belief under this? So the belief might be something very simple, like something's wrong. Something's wrong. Sometimes we identify this, just sense that something's wrong and we, we're kind of looking for a reason. Um, somebody should be different than they are. I should be different than I am. I need something. I'm not worthy. They're judging me. Do you ever have that? Like somebody walks in the room and immediately you feel like a little fear. It's like, they're going to judge me. <laughs> So they right there, you feel the tense of the body. So this requires a lot of mindfulness into emotion, body, sensation. Of course, there's intense fear or intense anxiety, but also very, very subtle sense of lack or boredom. I need to do something. I did something wrong. I need to be approved of. Or you might even identify a more fundamental belief, like I am this body or the world exists. So that's the first step, just identifying some source of stress or suffering and the thought underneath it. You can also just identify a stressful thought without even uh, necessarily feeling it. Um, or I mean, that could be the first thing that you notice. And that's what our complaints form is helping us to do. What are the things that we find ourselves complaining about? Uh, and then the second step is to question it. So uh, one of the complaints on my complaint form is, I complain about her because she is judging me. I complain about her because she is judging me. And so I then take that belief, it's helpful to write it down, so I really have it, and I can look at it and remember it, and I start questioning it. So it's helpful to close the eyes and to get really still. So you can question this belief with me, or you can um, find your own, maybe a similar one about feeling judged, a moment in time. And then I ask, is it true? And I really feel into 
the sense of, is it true? So the mind will very much want to keep going on with the story, but this is about stopping one thought and really feeling into it, looking into it, inquiring into it. So in that moment in time, I can say yes. So you answer yes or no. can say yes, she is judging me. And then if you want to keep with this, you can ask, is this completely true? Am I sure that she's judging me? So you're really feeling into... And, and even just this one question, um, you can really sit with it for much longer than I am or we are now, can start to open up and release this uh, belief. Um, and so that we can sort of get in touch with the reality underneath, underneath it. The third step is to explore it. So we explore what it's like when we believe that thought. So for me, I really go into the body again and I find out where do I feel that thought she is judging me. And usually it's in the throat or the chest area. It might be in the torso or the abdomen in the solar plexus. And I really explore what it's like to believe this thought. And I see different thoughts and images coming to mind. I feel it in the body. I really get in touch with the experience. And I'm going through this fast, but of course you can go through this a lot slower. Sometimes I might spend just a whole meditation period asking, is it true, and feeling into it, especially if it's like a sharp feeling of hurt or fear or anxiety or um, irritation. And the fourth step is then to let it go. So you, after exploring what it's like to really believe it, you, as much as possible, just explore what is it like to put it aside? Like, what if that thought never appeared? And then you enter into the experience without the thought. So you might start to notice things that you didn't notice before, like the sound. like the body. You might feel a sense of relaxation without the thought. I don't know what you'll feel, but um, this is an exploration of what is it like if I let the thought go? And then the fifth step is exploring its opposite. So you take on the opposite thought 
which could be she's not judging me, which could be I'm judging me. That feels very true in my experience. I created this whole imagined world in which she was judging me, and actually I looked over at her and she was had her eyes closed. Or like the story when I was sitting in the woods. She's not judging me. I'm actually judging me. So we just um, try out these opposites and see if they're true in any way. And any one of these steps can be explored on its own if one of them stands out to you, this inquiry into, is this thought true? This inquiry into, what does it feel like? This inquiry into, what is it like when I let go of it? Or this inquiry into, what's the opposite? Can I find truth in the opposite? So I'll send that, those to you um, if you want to review them and explore them on your own. And I'll post them outside of the Zendo as well. So finally, I'd like to share one last entrance gate of inquiry and insight. So we have looking into the self, looking into knowing itself. We have questioning uh, stressful thoughts. And the last practice I'd like to share is the practice uh, that could be called welcoming, welcoming practice. So this is a practice that's grounded in the truth that resisting our suffering, or in other words, resisting our resistance, is nothing more than more suffering. So when we try to push away or get rid of that which we don't like, we're creating more that which we don't like energy. <laughs> um, so this is a very sticky point of friction for most of us. We try to get away or push away our suffering, and that pushing away is itself suffering. So it feeds on itself. And so welcoming practice is kind of an antidote to that. Welcoming practice is a practice of inclusivity, of going into and receiving our suffering in a very visceral way. And it works because suffering itself is fundamentally made of peace. And I don't expect you to um, agree with me first off hearing that, but I invite you to explore that. It could be a life koan, is suffering actually made of peace? I think this is pointed to in the Heart Sutra when Avalokiteshvara, who is the bodhisattva of compassion and is known for going into the ocean of suffering, when Avalokiteshvara, deeply contemplating Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five aggregates are empty. Suffering itself is fundamentally made of peace. Everything, all five aggregates, are made of emptiness or peace. 
So this is something you can investigate for yourself, and this is a continued investigation also for me. Is it true? But I think this is one of the reasons why the practice of welcoming works as entering into and um, receiving that which we normally push away. Um, Welcoming, even loving, our suffering. So this is a practice of meeting it viscerally, meeting resistance, aversion, anxiety, depression, fear, lack, restlessness. It's meeting it, finding it. Where is it? Where is it felt? For me, it's usually always in this area of the body, throat, heart, solar plexus, abdomen. I don't know, for you, it's, it's personal. But when we notice it, going into it and practicing meeting it, so it's helpful to start with just maybe a mild irritation. So you can uh, maybe just think of some moment when you were mildly irritated, or maybe right now, you're mildly irritated by my talking or by your knee or I don't know, whatever, whatever it might be. Maybe you can feel some kind of dissatisfaction. And meeting it as a friend, as our object of meditation, intimately, And just like we would treat a friend, inviting it to come in and sit down, to look it in the eyes or feel it in the heart, in the body, where do you feel it? What is its texture? And we try to let go of any sense of trying to fix it or make it go away. Even the sense of fixing or letting go, letting it go away can then become our object of friendliness, of welcoming. That too. That too. So we bring this attitude of welcome, of acceptance, of kindness, and we get curious like we would a friend we haven't seen in a while. What are you doing? Why are you here? That's an interesting question. And again, this is a visceral, experiential investigation, so we don't so much let the mind go off and why, thinking mind, but we ask it directly, what is its purpose? What does it want? And we just feel into that. You can ask, what is it made of? What is the sensation I call suffering, fear, lack? What is it made of? Directly feeling into it. 
So this is a third way of doing inquiry to turn towards, turn towards our discomfort and to let it guide us deeper into our experience, deeper into true satisfaction, a satisfaction that excludes nothing and that depends on nothing. I'd like to close with uh, Zen Master Dogen's death poem. For 54 years, following the way of heaven, now leaping beyond, shattering every barrier, amazing, amazing to cast off all attachments while still alive, plunging into the Yellow Springs. I read that the Yellow Springs are, um, we're we're commonly a name for hell. But in this case, and in uh, Zen teaching, the Yellow Springs was synonymous or is synonymous with nirvana. And this shows us the relationship between entering that which we label hell and the freedom that that can bring. For 54 years following the way of heaven, now leaping beyond, shattering every barrier, casting, amazing to cast off all attachments while still alive, plunging into the yellow springs. So this is the possibility of our practice. This is the possibility, the promise of this inquiry, this deep looking. Please continue.